Before I welcome on yet another amazing guest of the Live Inspired podcast, I want to celebrate with you what an incredible year 2020 will be. I've whispered about it on social media. If you've heard me recently speak at a live speaking event, I've made a few mentions to it there. And I've even shared a little bit of it on a Monday moment back in December. Well, my newest book, In Awe, hits bookshelves in May 2020. As you know, I wrote this book with my four kids in mind. These little ones have so much joy for the day and so much optimism for life. They have inspired me to recapture and harness my childlike senses of wonder in order to become more engaged, more successful, and more fulfilled in life. And in this world of negative news cycles, loneliness as an epidemic, and the chronic struggle of doing more and more and more with less and less and less, my new book, In Awe, will provide you the tools to help rediscover the childlike qualities of wonder, of curiosity, of openness, of belonging, and of freedom that will free you that will permit you to live life more fully, more playfully, and more joyfully. As we dive into this new year, there is no better time than now to pre-order a copy of In Awe. It will remind you of what we once so freely enjoyed and how returning to it will positively transform our communities, our organizations, and our families. So my friends, I want you today, before we go into this episode, to visit me at readinawe.com and pre-order your copy of the book. I believe it's the kind of book that's going to begin a movement reminding us that life is not always easy, but it is good, and the best is yet to come. So again, visit me, readinawe.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. You're going to love today's episode the name of our guest is Laura McGowan. She has a new book out. I encourage you to check it out. We'll be talking about her book during our program. But during this episode, we're going to be talking even more so about addictions. Laura McGowan has admitted publicly and now privately and now in her book that she was in fact an addict, that she lives as an addict, that her addiction is alcohol, that it caused her to make many, many, many mistakes along the journey. It was eventually these mistakes and one in particular that we will unpack during this podcast that led her to realize the life she was living, looking backward, would no longer be the life that she is going to choose to live going forward. The reason I want you to hear this episode today is because some of us are battling addictions with alcohol. That's something that some of us are struggling with today. Some of us are battling addictions with smoking, with other addictions, whether it's online use, technology, addiction, anger that we feel for something that happened to us in the past, resentment, whatever it might be, what we know to be true is we all have these addictions. And then what? How do we make sense of them? How do we no longer live in shame around them? And how do we move forward inspired with them? Not 
in spite of them, but maybe become even better versions of ourselves because of them. There's a question that Laura and I will unpack on this interview that I want you to remember on the front side. It's an awesome one. Here's how many addicts set up the idea of making a change. The question they will ask you is, is this bad enough that you finally will make a change? Is this decision that you're making with drinking, with smoking, with what you're choosing in some area of your life, is it bad enough that you'll finally make a change? But Lara's question to me and to you today is this one. Is what you are doing, this addiction that you are choosing, good enough for you to stay the same? Is that alcohol? Is that cigarette? Is that food? Is that willingness to lay in the bed and sleep through your days? Is that way that you're going through life having a pity party on how lousy everything is? Is that decision good enough for you to stay the same? And if not, what are we going to do to make life even better? This is a conversation about making life even bigger, even better, saying yes to the best that remains in front of you. So my friends, today I encourage you right now to sit a little bit closer to that radio, buckle up, grab your journals, open up those heads and your hearts as we interview and introduce you to my friend. Her name is Laura McGowan. Laura, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, John. Thank you. Thank you. So for those who have not yet picked up the book, and I encourage them again to check it out, talk about why you wrote the book, We Are the Luckiest. I had always wanted to be a writer. I had this big dream to be an author, although my career and my life did not resemble that path at all. I was a big reader and just lover of words. So I knew for a long time that I wanted to write, but I didn't know what... (laughs) I didn't know what story I was going to tell. And I knew pretty early on when I was faced with the the fact that I I really had to get sober, that that was what I wanted to write about because it brought me to my knees in every every way. You know, it it pushed me so far up to the edge of, beyond the edge of everything that I thought I knew about life and myself. And, And so I started writing on a blog before I was even sober, just started writing about what I was going through. And it helped me so much to write. I didn't, I always say like, I didn't write this, this book for other people. I, I hope that it, I love that it might read it, reach other people and all that. But I really wrote it because I needed, it was like writing a letter to the Laura of 2012. Mm. You know, that was so lost and in despair. I started writing it to really heal myself and figure out what the what the hell I was going through. Now I'm five years sober. So in there is a little bit of hindsight and wisdom as to what actually happened. Let, let's talk about what actually happened, what led to it, what you've learned and, and what it means. So let's back all the way up. I know you're taking this call from north of Boston today, but that's not where mm-hmm. your journey begins. Where, where were you born? Mm-hmm. Where were you raised? Yeah, I was born in Colorado in a little town south of Denver and grew up there. I lived there my whole life until I went to college in Colorado too. And then when I was 21, like the month after I graduated from college, I moved to Boston with a friend just on a whim. Uh I'd never even been east of Chicago. It was like, I just had this sort of idea that I wanted to be on the east coast and moved out here and immediately fell in love. Still am in love. It's like the the best love story of my life, I swear. And um, in all of that, I, I grew up in a family where drinking was very normal. It was just what adults did, what people did. I didn't even really think much of it 
uh, until much later when I realized like, oh, not every family, not every, not everyone drinks like that. Mm. You know, it's not part of every single night and social gathering and all that. We owned a restaurant. And so that's a very sort of booze laden culture. By the time I had graduated from high school, I was allowed to drink openly. It was just no big deal. And you know, I often get asked, like, what is the moment where you knew maybe you had a problem? And I wouldn't really think about this until much, much later, but I remember it so profoundly. Uh, it was my high school, it was like my send-off party to college. So sometime in the summer, right before I went went away. And we had a barbecue at the restaurant. We shut it down. And I was going through a lot at that time. I had like I had developed a pretty bad eating disorder. You know, some of it was just the usual stuff, like going off to college and, and all that. But there was a lot of stuff going on in my family. I had no tools to express what was going on with me. And I was wound pretty tight. And I went to this party, you know, my party, middle of the day. And I could just pour drinks freely. I remember about my third drink, I poured this really strong drink. And I was pretty buzzed at this point. And I just remember this feeling in my body, feeling like nothing was wrong anymore. All that I had been so wound up about and so worried about, even just hours before, I couldn't feel it anymore. And everything seemed possible. Mm. I felt good. It all lifted. And I took like a big sip of this drink. I remember like the, the taste, I could taste it even now. And just feeling the alcohol like go through my body and thinking, if I can just stay like this, then everything's going to be okay. Like if I can just stay in this state, everything's going to be okay. How often going forward were you in that state? I don't think I missed a weekend, certainly, for the next 15 years, except for when I was pregnant. The thing is, though, it didn't always look bad. There were times when my desire to drink or whatever was kind of overshadowed by other things that I was doing. Like when I met my husband, for example, my ex-husband, and fell in love with him. It was like I didn't, I wasn't drinking as much then. And there were times when it, it wouldn't have seemed problematic. Mm-hmm. But I also had this like undercurrent of that same feeling. Like I was chasing that pretty hard. And even though it, I wouldn't really let it arrive into my consciousness, I knew that I liked it a little too much. I knew that I eventually I knew I kind of needed it too much. Like I would never go into a social situation without drinking. I wouldn't even make plans where drinking wasn't involved. And, you know, I gravitated towards an industry towards advertising, which is very booze laden. You know, I was an account person, which, you know, you're expected to entertain and drinking was part of the job. Mm-hmm. It kind of progressed. There were moments where there were times when I would have really bad nights. It would be always be something I could kind of write off as like, oh, it's just a bad night. But over time, it, it got to be, if you got really, really close to me, you could see that it was it was more than just a couple bad nights here and there. Laura, what were you trying to fill? It, it seems to me we all have this tank mm-hmm. that we're trying to fill with something. And so I'm curious, what, what were you trying to fill? What were you trying to mask up that, that alcohol was helping you feel a little bit bigger than you were? There were a lot of things. I mean, I know enough now because I've done so much work to know that what I was trying to do with alcohol was be whatever I needed to be in that moment to be okay and to get what I wanted, to get the love that I wanted, to get the attention that I wanted. 
I grew up in a, in a home that was fine. It was fine and, and even great on some levels, but on other levels, I learned pretty quickly. My parents got divorced when I was really young and I got, I learned really quickly to sort of shape shift, like mm-hmm. to make things okay. I'm going to be this person to you and this person to you. And I'm not never going to act like I'm upset. I'm never going to be sad. I'm just going to like power through. I had lots of marriages and divorces between my two parents, not, not just to each other with, but with others. And so the ground shifted a lot and I learned to just, I learned that being strong was just like sucking it up and to keep going. That's not sustainable, nor is it healthy, healthy. Like it essentially it's like leaving yourself all the time. Right. I had no real sense that what I truly felt and how I truly was, was okay. And that causes a really significant disconnect internally. That is extraordinarily painful. I drank to like be whatever I needed to get the love that I wanted. So I've read from you and then heard you share on another show that a lot of the friends that you hung with as you became sober would say things to you like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you're sober. I'm glad I don't have a problem with it. And then you said, and these are always the ones that have drinks in their hands. It, you know, they, so they're, they're, they're always drinking, but they don't have an issue with it. And as I look around yeah. our network and a lot of my professional friends and personal friends, like around Lent, for instance, it's a, a religious season that we celebrate. I, yep. I don't drink for 40 days leading up to Easter ever. Just don't touch it. Mm-hmm. And I walk mm-hmm. into these parties and people look at me like I'm a pregnant man. Like something's very <laughs> wrong with this guy. Please I drink know. something so I feel more comfortable about myself. And I, I, I find... Uh, I find what you went through and what you're going through, I think it's a daily struggle, is one that is not unique to you, but completely global to all of us. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on our show. You've had some incredible stories that you shared vulnerably in the book. One was a DWI. You get this Mm -hmm. DWI, which I would imagine is a massive wake-up call. Tell us what it meant to you. Oh, John, you would think it would be. (laughs) It should have been. I think the most astounding part of my reaction to that was that it wasn't a wake up call. Got a DWI and it was a horrific one. It wasn't just like a, oops, I got pulled over and and I had a little bit over the limit. It was like I hit some barriers in the road. I had no recollection. I woke up in jail the next morning. I had no recollection of any of it. And so I was mortified and terrified inside. But it's such a, it's a common enough thing, especially if you surround yourself with people who drink a lot, that I just was like, yeah, this could go under the rug. But the bigger incident came after that. I left my daughter unattended for an entire night in a hotel room. That was my actual wake up call. And I say this because there's maybe someone who's listening who, you know, there's always someone who's worse, right? There's always someone who's like, well, I haven't done that yet. That hasn't happened. <laughs> right. Everyone has a different level of what is tolerable to them. The thing with my daughter was a wake up call, not just because it was horrific to me, but because it was actually public to my family. And they were the ones who were like, yeah, no, this can't go on anymore. And I honestly think if that hadn't been the case, I might have just kept going just as I was because this is the thing. We all have coping mechanisms of whatever kind, right? And addictions are actually born of this very natural instinct. It's actually an intelligent instinct to like soothe ourselves and connect and to tolerate or survive our environments. It just goes awry. And so we associate those things that we do, whether some people it's drinking, some people it's work, some people it's technology, whatever it is, 
we associate that with survival. So to let it go, it seems impossible and you'll do anything to avoid it. Mm. I always want to say to the outside, especially alcohol and drug addiction, it looks so like weird and why? Just why would you keep doing that? You know, it's so against logic. But I, I explained it that way so that you can hear that. Like if you associate something with survival, it's like so woven into your who, right. how you've survived in the world. Aside from the actual physical addiction, of course you don't want to give it up. Let's talk about that wake-up call because when I read it, you almost have to like set the book down and be like, what is this woman thing? Like how, how did it get there where you're leaving a four-year-old on her own while you're going off on a binge? Like it, it blows me away. I'm yeah. going to ask about what led to that. But first of all, how hard was it for you to even include that in your book and in your interviews and in your blog? Because it's it's one thing to say, I'm an, hey, my, my name is Laura. I'm an alcoholic. You know, hey, Laura. Like that, that that's one thing. It, that takes a <laughs> lot of courage. Seriously, a ton of courage. It's another thing mm -hmm. to share the most vulnerable aspects of our journey that led us to waking up to that truth. And I would imagine right. for you, this this is as vulnerable as it gets when you are leaving the most prized possession you have by herself in a hotel room. Yes, it's, it is, it is, it was the worst moment of my life, for sure. And I, one, have been very practiced at telling my story and also hearing other people's stories. So I don't have shame about it anymore. I don't because I understand what was going on with me, right? And have done a lot of work to, to forgive myself, and I have. It's the opening sentence for the book for a specific reason, and it, it's not to shock anybody. Well, first of all, the book is titled We Are the Luckiest, and it's like this sort of bright cover. Hmm. It's like, this is uplifting. And then you open it, and it opens with, on the night, July 13th, 2014, I left my four-year-old daughter in a hotel room overnight because I was blackout drunk because I wanted to let people know this is what we're going to do. Like, this is where we're going, and I'm going to be completely honest with you, and I'm not holding anything back. In my experience, honesty feels very expansive. Mm. Like, when I read someone's words or I hear their story and you know they're telling you the truth— it's something good. happens. No doubt about it. Something happens with you, right? I specifically also, I work with so many women and so many mothers, moms especially who fall way into addiction, think that they're, they're the absolute worst human beings to exist ever because it flies in the face of so much of what we know and feel that mothers should be. And so I want to, to talk to that woman at the beginning of the book and say like, I'm talking to you. We're having a conversation. You have that conversation, and part of that conversation leads to this next statement that you make, and I love it, by the way. I interviewed a guy named Tom Hoare. He's a priest who works on the East Coast with those who have addictions, and the question he asks those who come to his retreat center is, have you had enough? And if they say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, he's like, okay, get lost, and when you have, come on back. When you've had enough, come on back. You reframe it in the exact opposite way. I really love the way you say it. So here's what you said. Is this bad enough for me to have to change? But you say the question we really should be asking is, is this behavior good enough for me to stay the same? Is me leaving my four-year-old by herself in a hotel room good enough for me to have to stay the same? Talk about what that means to you. Is this good enough for me to stay the same? I understand why he says that to people <laughs> in addiction. I do understand that. But what I really want, alcohol especially, is this 
phenomenon in our culture mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Like you, you said earlier if, that when you don't drink for Lent, you go into a party and people are looking at you funny like you're a pregnant woman. It's, <laughs> it's, the, only, it's the only drug that we have to explain not using. It's like the only thing. No one would ever ask you, why are you smoking tonight? Right. Or why aren't you doing cocaine tonight? That's so strange. But alcohol, we have this strange thing with it. And it's definitely one of those areas of our life where we say, you're either someone who can drink or you can't. And so the natural sort of question is like, okay, is it, is it bad enough yet? Is it bad enough yet? Is this bad enough? Do I qualify as an alcoholic? Does that mean I have to stop? Right. Mm. And the question, the, the reality is that alcohol is deleterious to everybody. I'm not saying everyone shouldn't drink, but it doesn't really help anybody. And there are so many people that come to me and say like, oh, you know, I just have this nagging feeling that it's not helping me. Like I have this sort of scratching anxiety all the time. And I notice that I'm clear when I don't drink, but is that like, is this bad enough that I have to actually change? It's like, what if you asked yourself if this was good enough? Mm. Like, this is this good enough that you want to stay the same? It completely changes the question. And this is for any behavior, no right? Doubt. It's for any relationship. It's any job. It's any anything that you find yourself doing. I call it your thing in the book. Like, we all have things. We all have our thing to go, is this good enough for me to stay the same? And then the question I always follow that with, because to me, it's so illuminating, is are you free? Does this thing own you? Does this behavior own you? Does this relationship own you? Are you free in your life? And that's such a, it's a personal question. It's something that like you answer from the inside, right? Uh, And you, you know the answer when you ask it that way. When were you finally able to say yes to that? That you, that you were able to look in the mirror, no makeup on, no bottle in your hand, mm-hmm. and say, yeah, man, I'm finally free. Oh, man. Um, that's such a good question. You know what? So the name of the book is We Are the Luckiest, and it's based on this night that I was with my daughter. It was a like random Tuesday night in that I had 30 days of sobriety. I was very raw, very emotional. I don't know what was going on that night, but I, I had been crying and I was still very much in despair. Um, and things felt heavy, right? It, but I cried and it passed. And there was this moment of like spaciousness after the storm had passed, right? And I was laying in my bed with my daughter and I was like, I'm safe. I have clean sheets. She's safe. No new destruction is going to happen tomorrow. That was a definite moment that I can remember where I thought, I'm free. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to pivot into a chapter that you write about the magnificent monsters. Mm-hmm. You're talking about shame. Uh, you know, our dear friend Brene Brown has blown that word up finally. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that uh, we are talking honestly and vulnerably about shame. Yeah. What What does that word mean to you? And what is magnificent monsters really all about? That chapter starts with me recounting a conversation that I had with someone I was dating. It was like a, a year and a half ago or so. So I, I had a few years of sobriety and he relayed to me that someone in town had said that he heard he was that my boyfriend at the time was dating someone and that he might want to 
watch out because he heard that I was an alcoholic, raging alcoholic who had lost custody of her daughter, cheated on her husband, just all these horrible things. Right. And he said, you might want to be careful of the company you keep to this guy. And, and I was like, wow, that's quite a story, you know? And, and at one point in my life, had I heard that I would have just spiraled into complete shame hole. (laughs) But I, I wrote about that conversation because I realized in that moment, I didn't spiral into a shame hole. (laughs) I got angry. You know, I was like, ah, who are these people? And do I know them? And where is the, the rumor mill that's, you know, about me? Because I'd been writing honestly about my life for like years at that point, Mm -hmm. writing, podcasting and everything. So I realized that I didn't have any shame about it. I knew that wasn't the real story about me, even though those things weren't pulled out of thin air. I'd never lost custody of my daughter, but I, I had, what I always say is like my worst nightmares happened and I created them. I became a liar and a cheater and a stealer. And I went, I saw in myself all the darkness in those years of my addiction. And even outside of addiction, like I can see the ways that I am jealous and sneaky. Carl Jung has said, like, we all have this shadow side. We are Mm -hmm. all everything. But once you actually see it in yourself and you experience it and you are someone who needs the mercy of others Mm. and especially needs the mercy of yourself, it really changes the way that you think about human behavior and, and who we are and what we are. And what I saw was we are all everything. There's this beautiful quote that says, believing you are only good is like believing in the half moon. There's always a dark side and there's a light side. So what I say is like, we are all these magnificent monsters, meaning we're all, all the light and we're capable of all the light and all of the dark too. The reason I didn't have shame in that moment was because I had already looked at every dark part of myself up close and decided and and knew that because I had tried for a very long time to hate myself into a different way of living and being, and it didn't work. So I decided to love all of it, to love all the parts of myself. To me, it's amazing how much less judgmental those of us who have been all the way to the dark side of the moon and come back around to the light are when when they return to the light. Why, why do you think that yeah. is? Why do you think those of us who've done a little bit of self-work and realized how broken we are, how many mistakes we've made, are less judgmental, not only of ourselves, but also of those around us? Because you've seen the fact that before then, most of us are pretty black and white, right? It's like good people do this, bad people do that. Moral people do this, <laughs> immoral people do that. And I knew in my heart, I knew that I was a good person. I knew that I was part, like made from God. I knew I had that in me. I call it like the diamond in the center of my chest. I knew that I had goodness in me. And yet I had done all these things too that were painful to me, painful to others. How can you not be more compassionate (laughs) after you've seen that in yourself How can you not judge people less for the mistakes that they make? It's just, it's impossible not to, you know, it's, for me, it was impossible not to. And so what I say is like, we are all magnificent monsters, but only some of us know it. (laughs) 
Laura, you write about the bigger yes. Talk to me, share with our listeners what that bigger yes means for you and what it might mean for them. What I have learned in my experience is that the pain that we experience in our lives, I mean, you're an amazing example of this. The obstacles that we come up against, the profound struggles are almost always invitations to this, what I say is like a bigger life. And I don't mean a bigger outside life. It's It's usually... That sometimes is the case, but I mean a bigger inner life, more compassion, more expansiveness, more capacity to love, more capacity to serve. So what we think is this devastation is is actually this invitation to a bigger yes. So the way that I sort of saw this in myself or came to realize it in myself was when I, I was um, about 20 days sober and went to this yoga retreat and at Kripalu, which is this really nice retreat center in Western Massachusetts. And I had no business being there. I was a total, <laughs> total disaster. I almost didn't go. Cause I was like, what am I doing? I have no money. I do, this just seems ridiculous, you know, for me to be at a weekend long yoga retreat. What am I doing? But I went, thank God. The teacher, her name's Sean Korn, when she was teaching and her message is very much like your pain is your purpose. Use it. She is a, such an example of that. She's so, she's such a powerful teacher. And as raw as I was that weekend, I I found myself feeling like this overwhelming sense of like, I want to do that. What she's doing. I want that. And I could feel that it was in me again. I had a different life then. None of that was, I was not close to that reality. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. I just knew that that was in me. And it was like, screaming at me almost. And as I was walking out the last day of the retreat on Sunday, I went through the bookstore and there was this book called The Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope. It's an amazing book. And I opened right to this page that had a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. And it said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you like my whole body just ignited when I read that. I knew that that was true for me. And I, I knew that the addiction had been killing me. The drinking had been killing me for sure. But this pain of not using my potential was killing me almost even more. And I knew it. I had known it for so long that I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. And I wasn't doing this bigger yes. I know that that's in everybody. And it usually comes, (laughs) we usually step into it through pain, unfortunately. So for someone who is on the dark side right now, I I find that our listeners kind of fall into two categories. One is they are living the great life and they want to touch even more lives through it. They want to make a greater impact through their time, their talent, their treasures for those around them. They want to continue to live inspired, which is awesome. The other side of listeners are longing for that, that they're sick of living in the shadows. They're sick of not living up to their potential. And so I'd like you to speak as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7 and into both of those groups. Begin with those right now who are dealing with addictions. And the addiction does not have to be alcohol. It can be sex, pornography, selfishness, greed, food, smoking. It can be a million different things that you are putting your time and your energies into rather than things that give you life and those around you life. So those of us who are over there right now, Laura, what what would you say might be our next step toward the light? Give us one thing we can do today. The first thing is to be honest about it. Like 
we try really, really hard not to know our thing. And even if we do know, we've never said it out loud to another person. I would say the first thing you can do is say the words. Like if you cannot say them to to a person, write them down on paper. There's something very alchemical about that. You can write down like, my thing is drinking. I'm terrified. I know I need to stop. I don't know how. Whatever the messy words are, you don't have to have a perfect, eloquent message, right? You just say the thing. Or if you have someone that you can look in the eye and say, I am terrified and I don't know how this is going to come out. And I don't know what's going to happen once I say it, but I need to say it because I want something different for myself. I am terrified. I drink too much. This is what's going on with me. That's the start. It's always about telling the truth about what's going on. For those who are living as best they can into their truth, they are uh, on the right side. They're in the light. They're moving forward. They're making a difference. Give us one idea of how we can live a bigger yes in our lives today. I have noticed this in myself, the ways that I get comfortable. When you're in your thing and you, like for me, I'm really comfortable with writing, really comfortable with posting things on social media. I'm really comfortable with the crafts and sort of the ways that I've presented my story so far. But what's something that terrifies me? And it's getting out there and speaking to a big crowd, right? Or I'll tell you what really terrifies me is thinking of going into schools and talking to kids about this. My thing right now is like, I'm pretty good. I've been doing this for a while. I'm hardly ever very uncomfortable anymore. Mm. So I need to find a way to get uncomfortable with what I'm doing and to have that awkward conversation and be the person in the room who feels like they're in high school again, you know, all strange and bumbly and awkward. All skinny Um, pimples. Yeah. Like how can I do that? Because we, because there's always more, right? And it's easy to do the thing that's, that, that comes easy. Um, But I would say if you if you are in that comfortable living your life spot, see how you can get a little uncomfortable. And listeners, you you uh, you know what that means for you. And I, Laura, what I know on this side of the microphone it means for you is the opportunity to get out there in front of college age kids and high school age kids, sharing with them your story and how it might affect them in theirs. Because, gosh, man, that is a time when the majority of us are living on the dark side. We don't know it yet because we don't even have clarity that we're there, but so much self-doubt, so much hatred, so much anxiety, so much depression, unworthiness. We don't belong. We're not enough. And then you step in and remind them that uh, none of that is true. So, uh, the, the gauntlet has been set. You've been challenged. <laughs> you just made me so nervous. <laughs> like, I, oh my well, God. Well, I'll be, I'll be cheering you for it because when I speak to high schools and when I speak to, at universities, the line is long afterwards. And that's not because really? they want to meet John O'Leary. It's because they finally heard a story about a guy who is open enough about his story that connects with Ugh. them in theirs. And so there's a need and yeah. uh, we can make a difference together. So what I'd like to ask you as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7 is when people finish your book, when they realize that, yes, indeed, we are the luckiest, what's one thing that you hope they know to be true in their life? It's in the very last words of the book that there is this life that is calling you forward. It wants so badly, more than anything, for you to like glimpse its vision for you. Um, And I want everyone to feel that, not and, and that's everyone, not just people who have struggled through addiction. I want them to know that there is this life that is 
dying for you to look at it. Mm. And I, what I say is like, if you could see only a fraction of what's possible for you, you would fall to your knees and cry. <laughs> yeah, my friends, I'm always looking for just like one or two nuggets during a program. And for that, when you look at the possibility of your life, it would bring you to your knees in humility and in joy of what is possible still. That is true not only for Laura McGowan, but for each of us in our journey. So Laura, welcome now onto the speed round of the Live Inspired 7. <laughs> Number one, this is the first question that's been asked of every guest on this show. The first one is, what is the best book you have ever read? Oh, I love this question. I have to say, for me, it is uh, a novel, and I, it's the best book I've ever read because it's the reason I named my daughter my daughter uh, her name is Alma, and it's The History of Love by Nicole Krauss. In one sentence, what is The History of Love about? It's about all the things we've been talking about. It's about the human condition, the expansiveness of our hearts. Mm. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child south of Denver growing up that <laughs> you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Playfulness. Mm. I'm not like that anymore so much. If your home caught fire and all living things were out and you had an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, what's that one thing you would grab? Oh, my God, my cats. No, the cats are out. They're, they're oh, meowing outside the on the sidewalk. Okay. They're watching the flames and the smokes. So now you run back in. You grab one thing. What's the one thing? Mm, uh, I would grab the paintings that my grandma has done that she she's passed now, but I have, I have paintings of hers. So I would grab one of those if I'm only allowed to grab one. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach or a mountain range and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, Laura, who would you want to be seated right next to? Mary Oliver. Wow. Talk about Mary Oliver. She's a poet uh -huh. uh, for those who don't know. And to me, she was the absolute master of paying attention she wrote mostly about the natural world. She just had this exquisite way of turning the very mundane into prof the profound. I think of her words all the time. They've literally saved my life, some of her poems. And yeah, she taught me to pay attention. I think we could all benefit from reading some of Mary Oliver's poems because I, I think we are bored by the mundane. And if you pay attention to it, it's, it's exquisite. <gasps> It's exquisite, yeah. What's the best advice that you've ever received? I, this is the most fresh in my mind, so I'm just going to say it. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and he said, it's okay to practice. You're not performing all the time. You need to practice. And that you can approach everything in life that way. And he was talking about me and relationships, but work, creativity, parenting, like you're just always practicing. It's awesome. You're not, yeah, so... What would you tell your 20-year-old self? You know, my instinct is to say, like, you don't need to drink, but I'm so grateful that I went down the path I did. I think I would tell her, like, you're going to be loved. You're going to be loved. Mm -hmm. Final question for you, Laura McGowan. It has been said that all great people and authors can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That's how I, part of how I ended my book. It was, uh, Less me, more God. Less me, more God. Words on the tombstone of our dear friend, Laura McGowan. Laura, I want to thank you <laughs> for the book, for living the book, for sharing it, and for reminding us that 
there are two sides to the coin and you don't have to stay on the dark side for the rest of your journey. Like we, we can indeed come around and in doing so we become even better versions of ourselves. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was so, so fun to talk to you. It's been an honor. Uh, my friends, that is Laura McGowan. I am John O'Leary. The book is called We Are the Luckiest. And today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, thanks for joining me on today's Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, make sure that you rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word and it ensures that people can more easily find our podcast. We are available for free. That's good news at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else that you are streaming your audio. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on what you've heard today and how to apply it in your life. We've got a lot of awesome episodes lined up for you in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be looking forward to welcoming you back next time.